Black History Mini Docs is posted. Eugene Jacques Bullard, October 9th, 1895 through October 12th, 1961. The first African-American combat aviator was known as the, quote, Black Swallow of Death, end quote, for his courage during missions. He led a colorful life, much of it in Europe. Bullard was born in Columbus, Georgia, on October 10, 1895 the seventh child of Josephine Thomas and William O. Bullard. Eugene received a minimal education but learned to read a key to his later successes. After witnessing the near lynching of his own father and other racial violence. Bullard ran away from home in 1906. In Atlanta, he joined a group of gypsies and traveled with them tending and learning to race their horses. In 1912, as a teen, Bullard stole away on German merchant ship bound for Aberdeen, Scotland. For the next two years, he performed in a vaudeville troupe and supported himself as a prize fighter in Great Britain and elsewhere in Europe. He first appeared in Paris, his longtime destination at a boxing match at a boxing match in November 1913 Bullard was 19 years old when World War 1 broke out he joined the French Foreign Legion serving the Moroccan Division of the 170th Infantry Regiment. He was seriously wounded twice and pulled out of action. France awarded him the 
day Carrier, the cross of Carrier, Croix de Carrer, and Medale Militare, Medale Militare, for his bravery at the Battle of Verdun. In 1916, he joined the French Air Service, first training as a gunner, but later as a pilot. Bullard quickly became known for flying into dangerous situations, often with a pet monkey. He amassed a distinguished record, flying 20 combat missions and downing at least one German plane. When the United States entered the war, Bullard and other American expatriates applied for transfers to U.S. forces. Despite Pollard's flight experience, his application was denied and the United States military pressured France to ground Bullard permanently to uphold the U.S. policy against black pilots. France succumbed and removed Bullard from aviation duty. After the war, Bullard discovered jazz and eventually owning two nightclubs including Les Cadrilles in the Montmartre section of Paris. Bullard married Marcel Strawman in 1923 and had two daughters, Jacqueline and Lolita, but the marriage ended in divorce in 1931. Bullard later joined a French counterintelligence network in the early years of World War II, spying on Germans in occupied Paris. His nightclubs were popular with German officers who had no clue that 
Boulard, fluent in German, was indeed a spy. By the end of World War II, although a national hero in France, Boulard and his daughters moved to New York City, New York. He established a new life, working odd jobs selling perfume and operating the elevator of the RCA building home to the Today Show. In 1954, Boulard was interviewed for the show. In 1959, the French government named Boulard a National Chevalier or Knight. The following year, French President Charles de Gaulle visited the United States. He traveled to New York City to meet Boulard personally. Eugene Jacques Boulard died in Harlem on October 12th. 1961 at the age of 66. In 1994, he was honored posthumously by the Smithsonian Institution's National Air and Space Museum. Contributor Garner Carla W. Independent Historian. Thank you for listening. futuristic thing about it that it could go on and be applied in different types of stuff but in general i've been very much inspired by jazz can't call won't call myself a jazz player or anything like that but i do you know i'll, I'll croon some jazz like one of my favorite tunes is moody's move for love um 
But what I do and what I've been doing over the years is this uh, kind of quirky R&B, sort of a punk, punk funk R&B kind of thing. It's always been mixing that and always had a little bit of abstract quality to it. Um, but I'm, you know, I'm, there's so much fusion in me of, of various genres of music. And um, I've had the uh, opportunity to explore it a lot more in some of the bands I've worked with over the years. And where do you get your inspiration from? Oh, man, I think I get my inspiration from my big brother, <laughs> who was, who was, that's what I would call him when I was this little dude, a toddler, you know, he's my big brother. But he's my older brother. And prior to him uh, going to Vietnam in the Marine Corps, he had a trumpet. He was my babysitter. We were in, he was in high school. He had a trumpet. Uh, I'll tell you to this day, I don't recall hearing him actually play that thing, but he would open up the case and that, that horn would just like charm me to glow from the, uh, the brass would just kind of hypnotize me. It was like a genie came out of there and it would like talk to me. I could actually feel it. I, it was more of a feeling, but I felt like I could feel or hear the music coming out of it. And um, that was that inspiration. But he did sing with me a little bit. And he, he's got a voice. He's, he always sounded like Eddie Kendricks. And he's got a um, good voice to this day. You know, but we used to sing. I can't remember how it goes now, but we used to sing the Chef Boy R.D. commercial together. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I love that. That was, that was like the best moment. Now, growing up as a young man, young student of music, so to speak, who were some of the artists that you listened to? Oh, listen to James Brown, um, Lambert Hendrickson Ross, um, uh, uh, Charles Lloyd, um, uh, uh, King Pleasure, um, Sly and the Family Stone became, a, after that period of being introduced to like blues and, and jazz things, Sly Stone was that next big influence for me. I wanted to kind of, write and get behind some keys and fiddle my way through things after hearing um, Sly and the Family Stone and then seeing them on uh, multiple television shows. Um, that was that was huge then. But I, there were a lot of people I listened to. I listened to Etta James. I remember the day, my, uh, Saturday morning, my mother introduced me to Etta James. As a matter of fact, it was three people she introduced me that morning. It was um, Etta James, uh, King Pleasure, all in the same, that same morning, and then it was Lambert Hendricks and Ross. I got all of that that same morning. We were doing uh, plaid, plaid, I don't know if you remember the plaid stamps from the A&P. You collect them, and then you go and turn them in, and you, you buy stuff with them. <laughs> you That's know. some green stamps. Yeah, there you go, man, you go. <laughs> so those are those moments, you know. Um, uh, there was just a few. I mean, we can go on here all day long about who I listened to. James Brown was one of those people. He was, he was a staple in the household. Um, but, yeah. Well, all legends, to be sure. Mm -hmm. Well, besides writing, composing, performing, you've also been involved with the New York Artists Collective, the Black Rock Coalition. Mm -hmm. You were president there for 10 years. Correct. Tell us something about that experience, if you would. Well, for those who don't know, the Black Rock Coalition was founded by Vernon Reed, Conda Mason, Craig Street, Greg Tate, and several other people who were in some preliminary meetings before the first official meeting started back in 1985. Um, and it was founded to counteract the racism and stereotypes that, ex that existed then, before then, then, and still now 
you know, um, a little bit less now, um, but nonetheless still there. Um, and it was created, and by doing that, creating an organization, um, we would create platforms, stages, locations for um, various types of black artists, not all rock. Uh, rock is a rubric, by the way, so it's a lot of things go into that, really. Um, to showcase what they did, you know, and to show and do it in a way that it taught an audience that we're not one thing, you know, and um, when you can see when you see us being creative, you see all the nuances and how different things are. Um, we would also pay to this very day, pay tribute to great artists, to great black artists of time, and and as well as groups that were led by black artists. Um, it couldn't be an artist. A, a, a black band led by a white person. We didn't roll like that unless it was just something exceptional, you know. Um, you know, you take, you look at the role of somebody like KC and the Sunshine Band, you know, and, and look where, you know, he or they came from. And you start looking, you know, you start to question some of those things. Um, but it was generally formed to do that. While I was uh, president, we had a lot of, you know, before I was president, Vernon was president. Um, Jared Nickerson, director of operations, had held a, a position as president for a moment as well. And then I was president. And one of the things I would do was kind of like reach out to people, um, you know, our board of directors and coordinate meetings, a lot of little administrative day to day stuff, do meetings, uh, maintain um, memberships and things like that, keep people active and involved. And, and we struggled with that for years because we all, we didn't always have a, a solid location to exist, but you always knew how to reach us. And you, and we were, fortunately we formed here in the city and all of us had pockets of information and groups of fans. So we could, somebody could always find somebody, you know, and you, and the word got around, you always knew what was happening. But I think our big support happened when we were at Frank Silvera's workshop um, acting workshop, we held meetings for several years up in Harlem. And um, that drew everybody from around the city and all the boroughs. That was an easy location to get to. We were, uh, you know, yards from the train station, literally. And um, it's just so much beautiful stuff happening. Great uh, 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 talks about racism and radio. We've had people like the great uh, Jocko from back in the day come through and meet with us. Um, we had, um, I mean, there was everybody. Garland Jeffries would come to those meetings. Um, and people would talk about their experiences. They were very happy about us forming this organization um, because it opened them up. It felt they realized that there was a community that felt the same way. And I think that was probably one of the biggest things about the organization because sometimes, you know, you, you got a lot of legends that live in basements, you know, some of the most phenomenal artists, whether they're visual dancers or musicians, um, they're, they're brilliant, but they're in their basement or in their apartment and you never hear about them. And they have feelings. They think about things, think about things socially. The organ of BRC, the Black Rock Coalition, placed itself in a way that every those people knew they had a family that they can come to and express themselves in. And that was probably one of the biggest things that really happened. Because then you got numbers, you got a support network, and you can be you can be your crazy self. You know, uh, white folks have a tendency to uh, get that privilege to be quirky, be crazy, do weird things and and make a zillion dollars on it. 
you know, um, black folks no different. We just, we're human. We do all that too. But the moment we step out of a particular bag that people saw us in for however many years, you know, folks are like, what are you doing? And I'm like, why are you asking me that question? <laughs> you know, what am I doing? You know, you do anything you, you want. So those, that's the big, that's the BRC and black rock coalition. The, the feeling felt, you know, from before it. Love it. LaRonda Davis is the current president. Um, she's been doing a, an amazing job for a bunch of years now. Um, I think, when did I leave the position? Uh, I don't know, 99, 2000, something like that. I know it was, it was in transition that whole period. A lot happened in 99, <laughs> you know? I don't know what it was about about that year, but a lot. And we'll get into that a little bit later. But hopefully that gives you an idea and uh, uh, listeners and viewers an idea about what the Black Rock Coalition is. And if you want more information, you can always go to blackrockcoalition.org. Um, you can check it out, do memberships, uh, see what's going on, get a list of like the bands that are part, part of the organization and bands and artists that we support, um, as well as a newsletter with updates on folks. And there's a lot of the OGs, you know, still there contributing to everything. And one of the greatest OGs we got and who's on our board is the great Nona Hendrix. Oh, fantastic. Now, let me ask you this. Was it around this time in your career that you became part of the Burnt Sugar, the orchestra chamber? Yeah, around that time. It was 99, the summer of 99. And um, <laughs> that, was, that was interesting because at that point, I had been doing, I had all these songs you know, and I've been doing with my bands. Uh, at that point, I had just started to sort of uh, wrap up with uh, Rebels Be Funky, which was a twist on my earlier band, PBR Street Gang. I didn't want to call it PBR Street Gang because I felt like the original members had something vested in it. So we were going to do something different. Everybody was out. And um, so I wanted to call it something different, but I was still doing a lot of my same songs with a different twist on them because the musician brought something a little different. Um, but... In 99, summer 99, I get a call from Greg Tate, um, one of the original founders of the Black Rock Coalition, and journalists, cultural journalists, um, the mayor, <laughs> he knows everybody, <laughs> don't forget nobody, and big you up. If you, if, let me tell you, if you twist the wires around your thumb, he'll big you up, and nobody in the planet will know that there's a better thumb wiring mofo that exists. <laughs> Greg is beautiful that way. You know, he sees the, the, the beauty and what folks do and the, the originality and, and what they bring. Um, he called up and uh, invited me down to session to the studio just to, to jam. Um, I got there already invited, he invited Jared Nickerson, you know, another former member, Flip uh, Barnes, Louis Flip Barnes, trumpeter, another original member. Um, and I think we are the four... You know, and eventually he hollered at Vernon, Vernon Reed. So Vernon's been uh, a participant of Burnt Sugar and the Chamber for quite a while. He's been a conductor, uh, just a regular player and participant. You know, so we've sort of five have been there. And but the thing was, the interesting thing was, I started to drift off and pardon me. The interesting thing was he didn't want to do any kind of like songs, real structured tunes. And I didn't want to either. I didn't want to, and I didn't know how anybody else was feeling, but it was very interesting that that happened at that time because I had just formed another band called Tricky Dilemma. And Tricky Dilemma, um, which were featured Marvin Sewell and Val Inc., 
we were just, it was some freeform stuff also. I was singing through an Udu. Here's, I got this Udu right here. <laughs> but um, I had a clay one, and I was singing. I was putting a microphone to it, singing through it. And Val was using turntables to be, to act as our drummer. And Marvin was just really opening up on guitar. He's one of the most amazing guitars. And we were just being free. I didn't want to sing any songs no more for a minute. I didn't want to look at my songs. And then Greg forms Burn Sugar the Oxygen Chamber. And it's based on, it's, an, it's like an extension of what Miles Davis was doing on his Bitches Brew album. This is like an extension of that. That album is like an institution in itself. And it really opened folks up um, uh, to doing other, uh, to approaching music differently. Um, and then, it, but it was, he used the, the conduction methods of the late, great Butch Morris to conduct it. So we were creating things right on the spot. We were, it wasn't like we were rehearsing. The rehearsing thing came, I guess we're in, what year are we in? 20, 20th year now? A bunch of Oxford Chamber? Those first 10 years, it was straight up. We were coming to the table. It was like, go to the show. We got, we're booked. We were like, what are we playing? We get there and it was like, give me a tone. It was one tone. And we're looking at the cues from Greg, the baton. He was shaping it like a DJ would like be mixing. He was shaping the tones and he would call somebody else in. And that's how we were creating music. And we would do that for like, you know, hour, two hours. Um, but it would be loaded and we'd be heated, you know, because that's those things musicians do. You do that in your home, you know, like, yeah. But if you got like, you know, two or three people with you, you know how that can, man, that's just, you're a creative person. You just know how that goes. So that was that fire. And uh, around 2010, Burn Sugar started doing, started doing, becoming more of a repertory. Uh, band. Um, still had the conduction things in because we, impl Greg employs it. And then he invites several of us to, to take, have to take charge of the band and, and conduct ourselves. And that has been a lot of fun. I've had the opportunity to do that. Um, conduct a, a full orchestra. Oh my gosh. That's, that's like the best, you know? Um, and we played all kinds of places, been, you know, a lot of places in Europe. Um, and, uh, here in the States, all over, um, a bit. Um, hopefully we could do South America at some point. I don't know, you know, but, um, that's, that's, that's Burn Sugar Dogs for Chamber. Well, we're going to take a brief pause right here. Please stay tuned as my conversation with Bruce Mack continues in a moment. Label me a black panther. Label me a black panther. Like Brother Fred. As he got shot 82 times while sleeping in bed. Call me a freedom fighter like Huey P. He was only guilty for starting a breakfast program so kids can eat for free. Give me black power like Brother Stoke. Even in exile, he still administered and fought for freedom remote. Help me open my eyes to see the truth. That little Bobby Hutton was the first black martyr way before the hands up don't shoot. Give me a strong queen like a Finian, why not? So we can give birth to geniuses like Pop. Help me organize a party like Bobby Seal. So we can one day ride with law books and shotguns for real. Go ahead and call me an agitator like Angela Davis. Her battles in the courtroom and speeches was all done to save us. Let me be free like Asada Shakur and Castro. If they open their minds instead of their tails, the FBI would have never had a need for Cointel Pro. 
tell me what's going on like Elwich Cleaver is on me, right? Then my mind is on another level, but my soul is on ice. Ice, 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 ice. Well, one of the things that I'm dying to ask you about, your collaboration with Melvin Van Peebles. Mm -hmm. Could you share a little bit about that with us? Sure, I'll do my best to be share a little bit. Because <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Melvin Van Peebles, who recently had a birthday. Hey, happy belated birthday, Mr. Van Peebles. Miss you, got to get over there and holler at you. But one thing about him is that he is he's just full of creativity. And uh, every time you turn around, he's creating something no matter... Well, I don't even think he thinks about age. He just will do it until he can't do it any longer. And that's one of the people thinks he'll inspire you. You'll be coming in feeling a certain way, and he'll get on your case in a minute. Like, what's wrong with you? Straighten up. Why are you feeling that way? <laughs> you know what I've been through? <laughs> and it's like, and once you catch one of those stories, you're just like, oh, okay, let me get myself together here. <laughs> and start working it. But I met Melvin Van Peebles over several years, a couple of times. And um, the first two times I had met him, he had come through on behalf of the Black Rock Coalition. And, and one of the times I remember most was when he was working in the stock market. And um, he came uh, through in support of the Black Rock Coalition. And I'm not sure whose invitation, but we had so many folks that knew so many folks, you know, um, so it could have been anyone. But I had met him then, but we never really had a real conversation. And then he uh, appears again. And um, I guess this, what is this, 2009, um, he asked, he comes to Burn Sugar the Oxygen Chamber and says that he wants to do Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song as the stage play it was meant to be. <laughs> I, I, at that point, I had known that was the original intention of that great flick. <laughs> but um, he said he wanted Burn Sugar to do it. And next thing I know, we were in full rehearsals in Brooklyn, um, doing, doing sectionals, doing parts. All the Most of the musicians had an acting part as well. I had an acting part. He was like going in on it, all the parts. And we were all, you know, and everybody was happy to be playing those tunes, you know, uh, they would do, which were originally like, you know, Earth, Wind & Fire actually playing as, uh, 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 was it Brer? Oh, I forgot the name of the group. But it's actually Earth, Wind, and Fire playing that music, and um, and the music itself actually uh, promoted the movie and um, made it. But he asked us to do that. We took it to Paris. It went over really well. We played it here at uh, Bam um, prior to us leaving. Went to Paris, did it, did very well. Came back. He decided he wanted to take do a bunch of his songs from his various plays. Um, and do them in the form of a band, a real funky, gritty band. And um, he was calling the band Nova Van Peebles with laxative. You know, ain't taking no shit from <laughs> nobody. And he, he was calling it hood funk. <laughs> this is all from his mouth. This was like, hey, Mr. Van Peebles, why don't we call it something young? Call it hood funk. No, this is all from him. Like, we're going to do some hood funk. You know, and he told, he wanted to pull out a few of the members from uh, Burnt Sugar out of the rhythm section and do it, um, which was Jared Nickerson, um, Chris Edelton, um, Paula Henderson, who was on baritone sax, um, 
Oh, what was uh, the uh, cellist? What's his name? Oh, he moved to, he's back in uh, Australia now. But even the cellist, uh, Andre LaSalle on guitar, um, and myself um, on keyboards as a backing uh, vocalist. Uh, a couple of things, I did some lead, lead stuff. But I eventually became like the sort of vocal arranger for for the ensemble. Um, since we didn't really have an official person really doing that, I, can't, I sort of became that de facto uh, individual. Um, so we went out and we were hitting all these little local clubs in New York City. Um, you know, as this Melvin uh, Van Peebles went laxative. It was gritty. It was, we were going to tell, he was telling life stories in it. Combination of poetry, singing, and... Um, and having a good time. He would do like some dancing at the end of it. Oh, it was a party like, and we were hitting like maybe, we were hitting once, almost once a week for a minute. And uh, we were playing a bunch of clubs. We went back to Chicago, um, which, you know, he was, you know, he was born in Chicago, but he hadn't spent a lot of time there. He just wanted to get out of there. You know, he's talking about somebody born in 1933. Um, you know, he's seen, been everywhere, seen all kinds of stuff. Um, and he comes from that generation of people where you tell these people they can't do something or that, that there's no entry. They will draw the entry and then walk through what they drew. <laughs> you know, he's got that kind of mentality. It's like nothing stopping, you know. Yeah. Absolutely. Let's uh, talk a little bit about Nubian Messengers. Mm -hmm. Nubian Messengers is a, a very recent project that I've been a part of. And... Um, the smile I have about that is that I get to play drums in that group. And I've always wanted to, like, boom, 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 be on something. I was doing that in the school as elementary school. But, you know, coming up, I was, you know, I, I wanted to croon a little bit more, you know. and um, But the instruments are always behind me. Horns, bass, guitar, drums. And Nubian Messengers, I had, there was a jam session that featured uh, a qua to Jerry Beal. And uh, Aqual was jamming with myself, a good friend, Ken Edmonds, Jr., and and Michael Machado at Mike uh, at uh, Stan Brown's uh, home studio in Brooklyn. And Aqual was on Vibes, and Mike Machado was not there that day, or either he was. I think we may have been trading back and forth or something. But Mike was the, the main drummer. I just had a little feel. For some stuff and didn't even know a whole bunch of rhythms, you know. Um, but I wanted to learn some because I was also teaching in school, and every time you turn around, we had drum sets, and I was like, I need to know some more stuff so I could teach some more stuff, <laughs> you know. Um, a choir liked my drumming. He just really he liked my drumming. He invited me to Nubian Messengers. Um, yeah, so I said, yeah, I'd be down. I didn't have a drum set of my own though, at the time. Um, so I said I'd be down. So I came through. Turns out I looked in uh, in the news in a uh, newspaper and, uh, and found um, a drum set that was on sale. I had a couple of people. I had a snare already. You know, I had a nice snare um, sitting around. Um, it was basically brand new. Hadn't really broken it in yet. Had a nice little case for it. I said, no, I need, just need a full set. You know, I found a pieces. I enhanced it. It was cheap. I enhanced it a little bit. You know, and kind of got me a little hot rod set, and that's the little set sitting back there with the green, green on it. So I got that over and it to the rehearsal space, and um, started doing this. Listen to these brothers play all this West African stuff and all this Guinean music. You know, I'm like, yo, this is killing. And I, you know, it's funny you grow up in a lot of culture and you think that 
um, you, you understand something, maybe because you can step to it, you can groove to it a little bit, or you found one or two notes you can play with something, but you're not really hearing all the, the entire rhythm and what it actually is asking or what the purpose of it was. And with these guys, I started to learn what these per the purpose of a lot of music is. And I started, I could hear like the folk stuff and African-American music, where it comes from even more and how it's taken and stuff is broken up as well as what we do different here how we've changed things and you start to hear that but all they were asking over me is like yo can you find a way to put that funk into what we're doing and i was looking for that because then i had to like really think about my funk it's like wait a minute am i playing the right funk i've been around some of the most masterful drummers on the planet <coughs> mark gilmore scooter warner rocky bryant chris elton lafray ski Oh man, we go down the line. It's like it's not like I want to like, you know, I want to come with some stuff because you get them in a room and you got to do some repertory stuff. They know the, the the nuance and how one song is different from another, you know, and it's really clear. So I was like, wait a minute, I need to like check what I'm playing here. So I got I, instead of getting too tight about it, I kind of got really free and open with it, and then I started to find stuff. I just had to remember, like, you know, what did I play? You know, how does that work? What is it? And they started talking about the rhythms. Next thing you know, we got a thing going on. I'm composing for the band. I'm writing. We got our first song out that I wrote for specifically for them called um, da, 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 Sister Space Shifter, um, which we, we put out last. Wow, did we do that last? When were we in 2020? So I guess we got that out in 2018. <laughs> Something like that. We got that on 2018 and did a couple of things since. But that's a great project. You know, I'm having a lot of fun with them. Getting on stage, bringing a lot of, you know, they're bringing all the drums, all this stuff. I get to play Udu with them out. I'll sing with them, singing from the drums. So it's great. And because I, I approach the drums, or I should say I approach the keyboard now a little bit better just by playing drums. I approach it more percussively. Um, I'm, I'm paying more attention to the rhythms because I play, I'm a very rhythmic player. I'm not very... I'm not even going to front and be tell you how studious I am harmonically because I'm not. You know, I hear some things. I hear melodies very quickly. I can do melodies, write melodies all day long. Um, I play a lot of stuff, but it's all about the rhythm. If I was a guitarist, I'd be a, pretty much a rhythm guitarist. Um, a tradition that's kind of like kind of hitting these days. I don't hear too many people just locking in and playing that rhythm thing. You can do a lot, a lot with that rhythm. But anyway, that's another story. Anyway, that's what I'm doing with uh, Nubian Messengers. Well, that brings us into Rules of Aqua. That's one of your mm -hmm. current projects. Tell mm -hmm. us a little bit about Rules of Aqua. Oh, Rules of Aqua is a straight-up uh, songwriting project that I um, started with, uh, once again, my good buddy, Ken Edmonds, who I started PBR Street Gang with back in the day. And Ken plays uh, plays guitar, plays a lot of like amazing, amazing stuff. His stand just comes up with all kinds of good stuff. Well, we decided we were going to form um, Rules of Aqua with a new buddy, uh, Michael Cox, who plays a guitarist himself, but he started liking, loving to play bass, and so now he's been, you know, he's been kind of zoned in on that bass. Um, but we formed that group with him with the intent of going out and actually play. Uh, mind you, we've only done two gigs to date, and that group was formed almost four years ago now. Um, actually, 2017. So this this fall will be a good, yeah solid three years you know um we formed that group but it's become more of a writing project we have a bunch of songs that are i won't say shelled they're just in stock 
we've got stuff coming out. I'm not sure what, which of the other projects they can be applied to because we sort of lost track of of what our intent was to be conceptually. And I think what happened was we really just wanted to be free about our writing. And I don't think we really embraced that. We, we have since. I think we wanted to be free about our writing and didn't really want to commit the song, a song to anything particular. And I think that, and so we were kind of like, uh, not, not clear or not straight with ourselves when we formed Rules of Aqua, you know, because that could easily be a production company. Um, and we've written, all the stuff we've written is all over the place, you know. And um, I'm not mad at that. It's just that that's something to embrace, you know. Um, so it's a songwriting project. Got a bunch of tunes out and uh, waiting. You know, not out. Yeah, actually, we did uh, uh, The Lights We Shine was a tune we did. Um, that's the first one we did, Mike and I did, without Kim being involved. Ken is no longer working with the group, although he's got a bunch of credits with us because we got a bunch of tunes still that he now, co-wrote. The Light We Shine can be viewed on YouTube, correct? That is correct. There's a video for it, uh, produced by Indigo. Indigo, um, And it's been out since... We tried to release it as a holiday song over a two-year period since back in uh, 2018, but we were always on the late, uh, late side of things. Holidays kicking in. It's like, oh, nobody's going to listen to this now. It's... It's over, you know, but we kept trying. So it was like, it was almost like a no release. So we did it again. 2019 came around, so let's release it again. Here we are again, still without the proper campaign. A little earlier, but you know, you need campaigns for that kind of stuff. Um, but we got it out, so it's gradually getting out to people more, and people really like the tune. Well, it is an amazing song, and I hope every one of our listeners has a chance to, to view the video and pay attention to the lyrics of the song now i'm seeing that you have the keyboard set up is it possible hey. for us to hear a little something something sure i um i have another song as a matter of fact this is thank you for asking me that because i set up a song in case that would happen and it's a tune called uh when i think of you and this song i wrote back in i guess march at the beginning of the quarantine because the, the pandemic had begun uh, unbeknownst to many um, but we were already, you know, it was already out back in, you know, December, really. Um, but it wasn't until March I wrote that because I started seeing um, the bus drivers, train conductors and engineers, male men and women, folks having to go to work regardless and, and up, up relatively up close with people. So I wrote, uh, they were like the real front line. And I wrote this tune and... Um, um, Lincoln Center had asked me to if they were doing a project um, I can't remember the name of the project but anyway it was sort of to kind of keep people encouraging uh, uh, inspire artists to continue doing things be in support of them and do something that kind of reached out to people and um, I had this tune um, called When I Think of You and it's called When I Think of You Sending Love to the Front Lines and I'm still kind of working on it it's actually in production I got a some stuff, but I'll just play a little bit of it. Um, so you can yeah, that. please do. Uh, yeah, I know. I'm a, chatty, chatty. I'm a chatty one, right? Share, uh, share, <laughs> please. Yes, let's, let, let's hear some of the, the, the Bruce keyboards.
TPS colon forward slash forward slash www dot buzzsprout all one word b u z z s p r o u t buzzsprout dot com forward slash one one five one five one nine or wherever you get your podcast and the program description says Nima Barnett presents BHMD Black History Mini Docs Podcast. Features contributing writer, 
for its Music Mondays post series. Greg Mickens as host of this episode. Greg's special guest is musician, singer, and songwriter Bruce Mack. Bruce Mack, a.k.a. B. Mack, is a bebop style vocalist that incorporates vocal improvisation into funk and other forms of music. Bruce is also the band leader and vocal arranger for legendary filmmaker Melvin Van Peebles. Band Melvin Van Melvin Van Peebles band called Laxative. <laughs> Listen to it on Buzzsprout HTTPS colon slash slash the three W's dot buzzsprout dot com forward slash one one five one five one nine or wherever you get your podcast. Thank you for listening.